I'm Grace Kelly and a huge welcome to the Saving Grace podcast, a place where we discuss all things personal development, well-being, mindset and so much more. I'll be sharing with you awareness, understanding and education on a range of topics that can impact both our personal and professional lives. Unlike any other classroom, you can sit back, put your feet up and relax as I bring to you a range of amazing guests who are on a quest to help you find your saving grace in each day. Welcome back to the Saving Grace podcast. I cannot believe that we have come to the end of season one already. Time really does fly when you're having fun and I have loved bringing these episodes to you and I really do hope that they have helped or inspired you in some way. I have been honoured to have spoken to so many of my personal inspirations throughout this academic year via this platform, and today's guest is no different. On this, the final episode, and to close season one of the Saving Grace podcast, I couldn't be more honoured to be joined by the amazing Drew Povey. Drew has been an inspiration to me personally for a number of years. And I find his journey, his knowledge, wisdom and guidance truly inspiring. Drew and I spoke about his passion and work in elite sport, his time in education as both teacher and leader, and the work he now does as a leadership coach within a variety of industries. We touched on his time spent leading Harrop Fold in Salford, a community which he continues to have such fond memories of. The challenges he faced there and how he overcame them. As an esteemed author of what is now three books, we discussed the inspiration behind his most recent book, When the Clouds Come, and the key messages that he shares throughout it. I am truly honoured to have had this opportunity to speak with Drew, and I hope you love it as much as I did. Good morning, Drew. I am so happy that you've come on to join me on what is the last episode of season one. Thank you so much for being here. Grace, it's it's a pleasure. You picked a good day for it. It's absolutely baking outside here in Warrington. It is. It's absolutely baking here as well. I think we're sitting on 27 degrees at midday, and it's getting hotter by the minute. It's amazing. I've seen a few of my mates on holiday and they're all like saying, look how warm it is here. And it's actually warmer where we are in the UK than it is where they've gone on holiday. So they'll be gutted. It is. And it's the last couple of days now for a lot of students in school and, you know, staff getting to the end of term. So I bet they just can't wait now to get to the end. Yeah. Let's hope it's not one of those traditional British times when the moment the clock strikes three or half three when they're finishing, the clouds come. Uh, no pun intended. No pun, there, yeah. Book title, yeah. But uh, and then suddenly the, the bad weather comes. The moment teachers get that well-earned rest. Typical. It's always the way. Um, Drew, I have known you personally now for a few years, which is amazing. I've learned so much from you, which is why I've asked you to come on to my podcast because I know that my listeners will learn so much from you today as well. But just for the sake of my listeners, can we go right back to the beginning and just tell them a little bit about Drew Povey and how your journey has led to where you are today? Yeah, um, absolutely. I'll try and keep this short and relatively sweet. And again, thank you for those kind words, Grace. I'm going to say 
learning is never one way. It's a, definitely a two-way street and I've learned just as much from you and your amazing work in wellbeing um, than uh, I'm sure you picked up from me. So uh, thank you for those kind words. My background is um, uh, probably not traditional. Um, it just only occurred to me I was doing uh, um, a, a bit of a talk at the release of the You Coach You book by um, Sarah Ellis and Helen Tupper, who are, who are now good friends of mine. And there were only, it was only when we were looking at my career, they do the Squiggly Career podcast, they, they do great stuff, when they were going, your career is really weird. Uh, and I was like, well, yeah, it is. And that probably explains a few things. But yeah, um, in, in a nutshell, found school difficult, quite a challenging student, um, probably wasn't the easiest student to teach. So the irony of me going into education is not lost on me. Um, got into sports coaching at a very early age. Um, Loved it. I was about 15, 16, which was obviously not the normal age you go into that kind of thing, but loved it in the sport of rugby. Very quickly got into sport, very quickly kind of rose through the ranks there. And by the time I was 18, I was working with uh, the elite sports team in a sport called Rugby League, which uh, is played mainly on the M62 corridor and um, was just in the mixer from a very early age. Carried on with my studies, uh, did my A-levels, uh, went to go and do my degree. And then at the end of it, everyone was like, well, you're just going to go into sports coaching. And I was like, well, yeah, but, you know, can see a lot of links with, with teaching because I think, you know, there's, there's so many crossovers. They're not the same. Um, they are different, but there's a lot of crossovers. So trained to be a teacher, but carried on the sports coaching. And the more I did, the more I was trying things from sport and education and from education into sport. Went into schools and just loved it. Started off in a school in Warrington uh, called William Beeman. Loved it there. Um, a tougher school, people might say, but I loved it. And the Warrington Wolves team I was working with was based on that campus. So I was coaching in the evenings and at weekends and in the holidays and then eventually went over to um, work at Harrop Fold School in, in Salford uh, in a place called Little Halton, um, primarily because my older brother was there. And also the, they had significant behaviour issues, which became something I was really interested in, that kind of habits and behaviours and change. And a lot of leadership stuff was happening here, Grace, without me probably connecting the dots. Yeah. And then my career went into leadership. I went over there as a senior member of staff um, very early, uh, but loved it and was learning a lot, reading a lot, carrying on the sports stuff, then started writing my own kind of materials on leadership for nobody else in the world, Grace, but me. Mm -hmm. There were just little notes I'd make from reading stuff and thinking, don't think it quite works like that. And just creating like almost um, memos for myself on, on, on bits of paper and then started using them more and then was sharing them with people in sport and then really got into the leadership world. Um, probably when I was the deputy head over at Harrop, got asked to do a couple of talks. I'd never done public speaking. Um, still don't do a lot of that now, to be honest. It was more kind of one-on-one -on -one, uh, coaching I was really interested in to create a development culture at the school. Eventually became the head teacher. Um, the school was amazing. Uh, the community is amazing still. Mm -hmm. Got a lot of time for people in and around Little Halton. Uh, the kids there, incredible. And was carrying on the leadership work because we had a big deficit. And um, that was one of the reasons we did the TV programme to kind of get the profile out there to see if we could shift it. It was quite a, a sizable deficit. And the leadership work that I was doing externally, all the money we gave to the school, 
uh, including the first book and the money for that. Everything went to kind of deal with this deficit um, and then eventually left education, um, not not uh, in, in the way I probably would have wanted to. It was a that was a tough old time. I'm sure we'll get into some of that. It was difficult leaving and then went from education. And because we kind of had a business set up doing the leadership work, which I just adore, then it was it was a natural progression to go into what I've been doing for the last five years. And I think what's interesting when I was the reason I referenced the you coach you stuff, it wasn't a name dropper, um, even though it was a name dropper, it wasn't intended of that. It was they were kind of going, that's really weird, like sport and then education and leadership and coaching. But to me, I didn't ever see it that way. And that was a bit of a moment where I kind of sat back and went, well, no, it's it's the same thing. It's all about helping people develop. It, it was, for me, there was a golden thread through it all. And I think sometimes we can forget that in education, that there's so many things that teachers are trained to do, being leaders and coaches. And there's so many skills that are learned in that you know, testing field that is a classroom that I just think are so useful in in so many other sectors. So that's kind of where I started, naughty boy, where I am today, um, hopefully better behaved uh, than I was when I was at school, but just doing leadership work. And the main thrust is let's just get alongside people. Let's share some ideas. Let's do some learning together and let's hopefully move forward together as well. Amazing. You were one of the first people who kind of caught my eye that we're consistently drawing the similarities between different sectors because in education, unfortunately, we can fall into a little bit of an insular trap. You know, we are teachers full stop. We work in a school full stop. And I don't agree with that at all. And the work that I started following that you did, you were drawing the comparisons, as you said, between the sporting industry, between business, between education. And I just find it really fascinating because there's so much that we can learn, as we know, from other industries. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's sad that we would box ourselves off, mm-hmm. but that's not just education. To be clear on this, this is all sectors will very often perpetuate similar ideas within that sector. So if it's charity or or the police or the NHS or education or business, it's or, or, or even sport, to be quite honest, they very often stick with those principles. And there are differences and there are nuances and you can't deny that. But the fundamentals of it, can be transferred from one sector to the other, whether it's leadership or or, or ideas. And this is very often what I say to to education audiences. You know, the skills you've got, as I said a moment ago, in a classroom, to get that right, it takes so many skills that are just inextricably linked to leadership, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and that's something we can't forget. And my goodness, Grace, we need to celebrate it more than we do. Because the skill set of really great teaching is great for so many aspects of parenting, of leadership, of sport, of you could go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. There's so much there that we can mine that is so important. Absolutely. So you mentioned just there you were working obviously at Heartfold and it's very well known for the Channel 4 documentary about what you were doing at your school. And what was coming to mind was there's a few there's a few um, scenes in it that really stuck in my mind. And one of them was a little boy who had dyslexia and the emotion from that scene honestly I've got goosebumps thinking about it and you brought him into your head teacher office and you said to him I can't remember the little boy's name but Jacob Jacob little Jacob and you said Jacob can I let you into a little secret 
I have dyslexia. And he looked at you as if, no, sir, you can't have. No, you're a head teacher. That's not possible. I love that saying. It was fantastic. No, thank you. I mean, it was, I wasn't keen on that going in the series at first. Um, and, and the reason reason that was because Harry had had such a challenging background. And, you know, there are pockets of people out there that think if you've got dyslexia, you know, you've got this like major learning difficulty. Now, mm-hmm. we know enough about neurodiversity and we know enough about how the mind works now to know that it works differently. It's not a case of you not being good at it. But, you know, there, there, there are pockets of people that will go, oh, gosh, you know, still now friends of mine will say, oh, no, I've had a I've had a really difficult week and I'll be like what's up and they'll go oh you know my kid's been diagnosed with whatever or they'll say you know my kid's been diagnosed with dyslexia and I'll go oh good and they'll be like what you know kind of falling off the chair and it's one of my greatest assets you know because of the way my mind works and but I'm really glad we did put it in because I got a lot of challenge from the governors at the school who were saying this needs to go in Drew and I I wasn't against it I'm not embarrassed about that at all I talk about it you know to the nth degree but it's always about protecting the reputation of the school wholesale you know you, you you really want to do that good job but yeah it was something I shared with him because he just wouldn't seem to shift his mindset to say it could be anything other than a total disaster for his life and to be able to share that with him and to see that moment. I mean, what wasn't caught on camera was I'd gone through a load of people, you know, famous people. Einstein, you know, is rumoured to have had dyslexia. Steven Spielberg, I was going through these, all these, and he was just like not getting it. He was just like going, so what? Who's that? Whatever. And I was thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, and again, this is kind of the brilliance of uh, education for me when teachers just get it right. And I'm thinking, what have I got here to pull out of my pocket to try and get this kid to go, all right, I'll think differently. And I thought, all I've got left now is me. Um, yeah. And he might just go, well, I definitely don't want to be like you, sir, and run a mile. But I thought, well, listen, I've tabled enough now. I may as well kind of go, I'm, I'm kind of all in here. So I just went with it. And then the response oh, was brilliant. incredible from him. And it really did change him. And, and and okay, nice that it was caught on TV and people have said very kind things to me. And it's not that I don't appreciate that. The bigger thing for me is, though, the, the beauty of the educating series, it captures what teachers do. You know, it captures it. I remember at the start of the pandemic, teachers were legends, weren't they? You mm-hmm. know, when people were having to educate their own kids or support it at home, they were going, you know, I don't know how teachers do this. And then very quickly, it goes back to all these teachers, these teachers, you know, and teachers don't always do themselves favours. I get all of that. But it was, you know, it's one of those things that I think we need to celebrate more. You know, that's happening. OK, mine was caught on TV. Really nice but so what that's happening with thousands of teachers and thousands of kids where that penny dropping moment where that kid goes I've got it or the teacher's saying you don't have to get it I've got you but we'll get you to get it that's happening day in day out in in our schools and it should be celebrated um a lot more than it is and it should be championed a lot more than it is it is. I mean, I, I love teaching. I'm a teacher, as you know, and I do. It's the profession that I knew I was going to go into from a, from an early age, really. And with all its positives, there's so many. But it is a it is a really challenging job. Can you think of, I guess, even in your leadership at Harrop or, or anywhere else, what, what has been the most challenging time that you've had to go through? Well, the ending was pretty challenging. Mm. I've got to be honest about that. That was that was a tough gig. Um but I think there's lots of challenges. I think 
I think for in, in education, there's so many moving parts, whether it's the DfE, whether it's Ofsted, the government coming in and, and making statements where, you know, teachers are kind of rubbing their heads going, where did that one come from? That makes it really difficult when you're working in a big machine and you don't always agree with it. But I, I often say, you know, you've always got to remind yourself why you came into it. You know, why did you come into this job? That's the important bit. There'll be things you don't agree with. And I get it. And there were lots of things I didn't agree with. And it, the, the, there's a huge frustration. I remember hearing Dame Alison Peacock talk about this and said, you know, you'd, you'd never, ever have the government telling a heart surgeon how to do heart surgery. Mm-hmm. You just wouldn't. Like, they're not going to come and go, well, we think you should just have a look at that valve instead, Mr. Expert. They wouldn't ever do that. But that feels like what happens in education. And that, I think, is one of the biggest challenges everybody has in education. You know, you can look at the system and go, is this even right? And I was working at a big tech company up in Sheffield the other day. You know, the question they were asking me was, you know, is the education system preparing kids for this world of tech? That's a hard one to answer. Yes, in some ways, maybe not in other ways, you know, with the way the exam system goes and lack of coursework. And there's lots of debate in and around that. And there's, of course, like everything, it's really dangerous to be binary on it and go, well, it's this or it's that. There's probably a middle ground somewhere in the middle. The truth will be somewhere in the middle. But I think that's probably one of the greatest challenges of looking at education and being able to strip it back and go, but this is what I'm here for. I'm here to help young people be the absolute best they can be. And if that's a conversation like with a young Jacob, happy days, that's great. That's good times. Or it might be taking the whole class on a journey they never thought was possible. And that's why I often say, you know, that's leadership. When you're stood in front of that class, you've got to lead them. You know, you're going to be challenging them, supporting them, getting them to think bigger and better than they ever thought was possible. That's the leadership skill set that I think teachers have got. So podcasts like this, Grace, that celebrate the brilliance of education is really important because we know about negativity bias. You turn the TV on. One of the reasons I wrote that book, you know, when the clouds come, because there's so much negativity in the world. You can get swept up if you go on social media or you listen to the news in education, what's happening now. Let's not forget those brilliant things that are happening in every school, up and down the country, across the world. There'll be great things happening. And we need to focus on that more, I think. Oh, definitely. And you mentioned earlier about the importance of celebration as well. I think in terms of a school system, celebrations need to be embedded um, within the school, really, don't they, in terms of the leadership recognising the great work that's happening um, and celebrating that? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it is a bit of a story for you if we've got time, and it's another name dropper. So you, you're going to be thinking, through. you're going to get a bad back from picking up all these <laughs> names you've dropped in this, uh, in this session. But I was doing a talk with Francois Pinar, who was a South African rugby player who won the World Cup and work with Nelson Mandela against apartheid right so I've gone to do this talk and I'm talking about leadership this was years ago when I was still at the school it was a great earner for the school by the way Queen Elizabeth II the theatre London set the scene in Westminster uh, 800 to a thousand people in this big theatre and it was brilliant we had a great time and his story was absolutely amazing right I'm just sitting there with my like jaw 
in my lap going, wow, what a story. Like It's not about the sport. It's about the impact sport had on a whole nation. It was just incredible. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end, we did a Q&A and it was held by, is it Hugh Edwards, the news reporter, yeah. BBC? I hope I've got his name right. Yeah. Otherwise, he'll never speak to me again. Um, and he was hosting it and we did a Q&A. And uh, the audience asked me first, what's my biggest leadership tip? And I talked about the black box thinking stuff, the Matthew Syed, the learn from failure. Said it's so important not to shy away from it. If something goes wrong, let's unpack it. That's where learning happens, you know, and that's what teachers know really well, isn't it? You know, if they don't get something right, that's how we get the learning. Learning's an iterative process. How do you walk, fall over, ride a bike, fall off, all that good stuff, right? When I'd finished that, um, I got a bit of a round of applause and I thought, right, Drew, you've not cocked this up. <laughs> You're doing all right. Keep going, sunshine. Next up was Francois Pinar. Now he then goes, well, my leadership tip, and by the way, I agree with everything Drew's just said. And I'm thinking, well, that's good because he's a he's a big, much bigger guy than I am. So he then goes, but isn't it the same the other end of the spectrum? He says, when something goes really well, we just look at each other, put the thumbs up and say, let's go to the pub. Mm-hmm. Or let's have a drink. He said, we've got to undress success. And yes, I think it's about celebrating success 100% because we know negatives have roughly two and a half times the emotional impact that a positive will have. But we've got to do the same the other end of the spectrum. Let's not just go, well, that worked out well and move on. Get the learning at both ends of the spectrum. And I think we can get stuck in the bottom end of the spectrum and not go to say, what is going well? And how can we leverage this? And how can we use this even more? to say, this is our learning point. Let's go even bigger and better in the future. I'm all for celebrating the small wins. Even in my classroom and in my department, I think celebrating the wins are really, really important. Um, Drew, when you were going through, I guess, a difficult time as a teacher or as a leader, did that have a ripple effect on the rest of your life? And like, for example, your family or, or how did you deal with that? Oh, I mean, yeah. There's always collateral damage when mm. there's tough times. You know, and even if that's the teacher, the leader, the coach, you know, the chief constable, you know, even if they're just distracted, you know, that's tough as well. And we've got to learn to manage that. And, you know, quite a few of my friends outside of education are kind of like, well, you get all these holidays. I'm like, well, number one, they don't get all these holidays. And number two, like it takes so much time to kind of decompress because I think it is full on when you're going in, giving like everything you've got emotionally and cognitively to something. So I think that can be really tough. But yeah, I think when you go through tough times and it's public, which is exactly what happened to me. Yeah, it, it, there, there are huge ripple effects. There's, there's, there's massive damage done, you know, when people are talking about it. And of course, yes, you do a TV series for the right reasons to celebrate education, to deal with the deficit, you know, to, to do all that stuff. But if you put yourself up there and something doesn't go so well, then that's when the difficult moments come magnified, you know, by, by an awful lot. And, and yeah, we had some really difficult times, you know, particularly when originally it came out, you know, head teacher suspended and it was so difficult when you've got the Daily Mail on the lawn, 
who were coming and asking you for comment. And of course, there wasn't any detail put out, which was quite deliberate. It was just a stark headline. And that wasn't the media, by the way. That was what the media was fed. Just stark headline, you know, had it suspended. And then it's kind of like, well, everyone starts thinking the worst. And everybody around you who knows you, who sees what you've been trying to do and, you know, ultimately all I did was my best and I wasn't a great head teacher I I say that I tried hard and I took some I think some decent leadership smarts into the role but it was really difficult and Mm. then of course it was the TV cameras on the lawn because of the TV series and it was a really difficult time but I think in those times you've got to as we talk about in the book hold your nerve You've, you've 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 got to be able to to find a way through and deal with it. But what's really interesting in the toughest of times is that it's less about you as an individual. And then you kind of, when you've got a family involved, that dynamic is protect the family. And you almost don't think about yourself within it. It's about what can I do to get through this moment and and kind of how do we protect those that we love most? That was definitely where my head was at. And it always has been during difficult times throughout my life. It's I think you almost go out of yourself and you'll deal with yourself later. Yeah, and you talk about so much of that in your latest book. But in addition to all the many roles and titles you have, we know we know that you're an esteemed author. Um, of what now? Three books. So you've got Educating Drew, The Leadership Factor, and most recently, When the Clouds Come, which is the book that we've been referencing. So I guess it was the tough times then that inspired your latest book. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, I often get asked, how does a dyslexic do three books? I was like, um, get a ghostwriter is the answer to that. <laughs> I've had some brilliant ones, but I know, I mean, obviously people misunderstand dyslexia. You can read and you can write, it's just a bit slower. But yeah, the, the whole idea with this book was um, I went started on the leadership circuit 16, 17 years ago. And at that time, Grace, everyone who was on there was the gold medal winner or the world cup winner or then these were big stages that we were fortunate to be on or the person that scaled the mountain and they were all stories of huge success and and whilst that is great and inspiring and, and a great learning opportunity you can sit there sometimes in the audience looking at people and they can be a bit disconnected well I'm never going to win a gold medal um I'm not going to ever win a world cup or this that and the other And I don't even want to scale a mountain. I don't want to do any of that stuff. What's relevant to me? And I've always talked about take the sheen off it. You know, I've done some great things. I'm proud of those things. But I've also been smashed to pieces as well, Grace. Being able to talk about being smashed and how you dealt with that. Because we might not win a gold medal or scale the mountain, but we're going to be smashed. We're going to have times that are really difficult. And because I'd written a lot and read a lot and was interested in this whole idea of difficulty, why not put the stuff together that I knew I was working with leaders on that was helping them? Why not put it together in a book and put it out there that will hopefully help people, whether they read it in one sitting or over a couple of days or have it as a bit of a manual on the shelf. It was all about having something that could help people in that moment of need. If they hadn't read the books I'd read, what could I do that would put something out there that could positively impact the world and help people develop, which, of course, is the main thing I did in education, in sport. It's about helping people develop. So that was really the main driver behind it.
So, Drew, I actually read your book in a full day. I could not put it down. There was so much in it that I absolutely loved. So, thankfully, I had the time and I edit alive. But there's a few things in this in this book that I kind of want to draw our attention to. I mean, there's just so, so, so much in here. Uh, but you talked about be more apple or be more hedgehog. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I'm really interested in in learning from all sectors, as I said earlier. And, and for me, Apple were a company that just tried things. You know, they just went out and had a go. They're a computer company mm-hmm. that did an iPod and people said, well, that won't work because people can't bother downloading their CDs to computer. Oh, don't worry, we're going to do iTunes. And then, you know, there was the iPhone and they said they'd never do a phone. They're more interested in kind of little handheld personal computers did the iPhone, the iPad, and it was always about just throw yourself out there. You know, even the iWatch, for example, you know, a lot of people were critical of that when it was first coming out saying, you know, how lazy someone got to be not to, you know, pull a phone out the pocket and lift the wrist up. And well, we probably know the answer to that because the iWatch is, you know, selling really well. So I think it's that idea of just go and try it. You know, Tom Peters has a great phrase he uses. It's not it's not pithy and short this, but it's well worth remembering. He calls it WTTMSW. WTTMSW. It stands for whoever tries the most stuff wins. I think having that ability to go out and try things and experiment, you know, again, that's where the learning comes from. Even if you don't get it right, you've learned one way of not to do it next time kind of thing or fail stands for first attempt in learning and all the quotes that we might read from various places. But I think the that idea of just go and try it, why not, don't stick in your box kind of thing is big. But the whole idea of the hedgehog is comes from the story of um, Lego for me. Jim Collins, I think, was um, the guy who created the hedgehog principle in, in, in Good to Great. And what he talks about there is, you know, hunker down, and go back to basics. What are your great strengths? A little like we were talking about earlier when we talked about successes. What is it that's your greatest strength? And for me, Lego did that when they got in trouble in the early 2000s. You know, we all grew up, um, if you're my age, roughly with Lego and then the rise of electronic toys and they kind of tried to compete. But then they went back to the brick and they said, we're all about the brick. And that for me is a hedgehog principle. You know, I've shared the stage with quite a few execs from Lego over the years. And it's a great story that actually go back to basics, go back to your fundamentals, master the mundane, be brilliant at the basics, all that kind of rhetoric and and, and build up from there. And of course, Lego um, 2014 got back in the top 10 world manufacturers for toys. And as of February 2022, are the number one world's biggest toy manufacturer. But they went back to basics. And I think very often in life, so where does that work? Because we're not big corporates, are we? Well, actually, what is it that's your fundamental? You know, a bit, a little bit like, that's why I talk about helping people develop. That's what I talk about all the time with people. That's my Simon Sinek's ultimate why. It's that thing that says, this is what I'm here to do. And okay, that was in sport and still is today. I still work in you know, elite sport and love it. And that was why I taught and why I do the leadership work. It's that thread. And I think if you know your hedgehog principle, but you've got to take a bit of apple as well and go and try things and experiment and go, you know, keynote speaking is not my favorite thing to do. You know, people see me as a speaker, but I, no, I get riddled with nerves. I, 
you know, it's really difficult. And I rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and OCD and rehearse. And it's kind of like, that's how I get through it. But I limit the amount of those, but put me in a one-on-one conversation with somebody and I'm, I'm kind of in my element. So I think it's knowing who you are, knowing why you want to do what you want to do. And that's why I think it's great working in education. We all came into education. You know, people don't come in for the holidays because if you do, you're going to get a rude awakening. Mm -hmm. We don't come in for it for the money. If we have come into it for the money, it's probably best that we look at our mathematics skills again because it's not the best paid job. But going back to that hedgehog principle, why did we bother doing this? Because it changes the world. It gives people chances. It, It shifts communities. That's the bit we've got to go back to. So that's why I was keen to throw that in, because in those difficult moments, remembering who you are is the power. It's the power of purpose that's probably going to get you through those tough times. Yeah, definitely. You talk a lot in your book about courage and you've got your own kind of acronym for courage, don't you? Yeah. Yes. Courage for me is. Oh, Grace, this is a bit of a story. I'll I'll do it quickly. Um, I heard a lot courageous leadership books have been written on it. People say, go out there and courage. And I'd be one of these people that sits there and is part of my dyslexia where I'm kind of wanting to get incredibly curious and go, well, how do we connect it? What even is courage? Like, what is it? Because we talk about it and we think we have an understanding. So I started reading books on it, no intention whatsoever of producing anything on it, but I did want to understand it for me because I don't think anybody would say, you know, life is good without courage. I think we all know we've got to have it. But what the hell is it? Wake up one morning and have this little courageous moment and then it might dissipate or disappear completely by midday. Don't know. So I started reading lots on it, um, read some great stuff. There's loads of really interesting quotes on it for what people is, you know, the most important virtue or the Winston Churchill courage is the ability to stand up and speak. But it's also about being able to sit down and listen you know, feeling the fear and doing it anyway, or, you know, saddle up anyway, the John Wayne stuff. So there was lots of stuff I was reading, but probably the biggest bit that got me and I went, right, I'm getting somewhere here now. And then I felt compelled to share it with others was from a guy called Brian Tracy. And he says that courage is the leap of faith. And I went, yeah, that's probably what most people think it is. And he said, you know, that's the bit, I suppose, when you're at the edge of the plane, parachute on, Am I going to jump? Am I not going to jump? It's the leap of faith bit. And I think that's well understood. But then he went on to say, but it's also about staying the course, being able to carry on. And that's the bit where I thought, right, we don't really talk about that in courage or it's not widely understood, or at least it wasn't for me. I started then starting to see what I could put together to help people. Yes, with the leap of faith, but yes, staying the course. And and he was putting a much bigger percentage of a courageous effort being staying the course. So he was, I think he said like 80% staying the course, 20% leap of faith, because we do, don't we? We all know people and we've done it ourselves in the pub on a Friday night. You might have had one too many and everyone's looking at each other going, let's run that marathon or I'm going to start a business. And it's brilliant at the time. We all high five. It's that great moment. Yes, leap of faith. I'm going to do it. I've committed. Three weeks later on a on a wet Tuesday morning, when the when the sexiness of the idea has disappeared, it's being able to carry on and see it through and keep going. And, and it was that that captured me. And then I wanted to create some kind of um, tips, tactics, tools, roadmap 
to be able to do courage, which is where the acronym comes in. Yeah. And it's a change opportunity, understanding, resilience, action, goals and engagement. Yeah. And it's 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 an amalgamation of all those, you know, to do something courageous, you've got to change. The opportunistic bit is about seeing other opportunities. You know, I love the story of 3M that created the post-it notes that we all love um, and use now to this day. That was a total accident. Mm-hmm. And if they'd have been too fixed in the thinking and too tunnel visioned, they would never have been able to use that slightly sticky adhesive because they were trying to make something completely different. It's made them billions, probably even trillions. But you've got to be able to look outside of that one path that you think you might go down, understand what you're willing to go to the wall for, the hedgehog stuff. The resilience bit is about, yeah, keeping going. We've got to do something. The WTTMSW, we said earlier, big goals that scare us a bit. And then the final bit is just don't do it on your own. You know, I still hear a lot of leaders saying leadership's a lonely job. And, Mm. you know, I'm dead honest. I've never had a lonely job in all my years of leadership because, you know, I'm not the brightest in the room. I'm I'm not the brightest crane in the pack, never will be. But I'm going to work with other people. And that hopefully is going to get me to be better than I am on my own. So that's the engagement bit. You know, it's it's something I put on social media probably too much, but I'm passionate that people get this life's a team sport and when I've been through good times I've been very clear it's been a team sport and when I've been through difficult times I've been very relieved that life's a team sport because there's been great people around you that will catch you they've got you and they can help you move forward definitely and I think it's when we do come through um tough times we grow through that don't we and you you talk in your book about post-traumatic growth as well yeah yeah this was um this is something that a number of books now are starting to talk about. I came across about Mm -hmm. seven years ago, you know, and it it links to a lot of the world of positive psychology, which for out giving people war and peace, your listeners grace on this. Mm -hmm. Basically, we used to know a lot, but we still know a lot of what's wrong with the brain. So if I say things like insomnia, Alzheimer's, dementia, depression, bipolar, you're going, yeah, 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 heard of all those, pretty much know what they are. How do we know what happens when the brain works well? Oh, probably not as much actually about what the brain works well. And that's not celebrating the good stuff. We might go, hmm, serotonin, heard of that. Is that something to do with that here? Smiling, don't know, something like that. So positive psychology was like, let's understand what happens when the brain works well. Very similar to um, Francois Pinar, um, that he was talking about successes. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? We all know PTSD, yeah, post-traumatic stress disorder. We've heard of it. We kind of get it. We understand it because we live in a world of, oh, we don't want that. And that pushes us towards the negative. Same in education. We're, we kind of get hell-bent on all the negative stuff and the trolling on Twitter and whatever, whatever. But actually, there's a load of good stuff over here. And there are lots of people that have PTG. Now, you ask an audience, what's PTG? They're all like, I have no idea. Is it a cup of tea? Um, something to do with, I don't know. Um, and, and of course, it's post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this is, is that, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder is about having an episode. And at some point after that episode, which can be a, a length of time, you know, if we were on a, on, on a graph, we would go, you know, down in terms of mindset, performance, general mental health, you drop right down and it can be quite difficult to come back up. Post-traumatic growth says as a result of a difficult time, we don't just have a difficult time and come back up to normal levels we actually go even higher. We get better as a result of that difficult time. 
And a lot of that comes down to things like framing. You know, how can we look at something in a certain way, which helps us to see what we can take from it? You know, and that's that sounds so easy to say. And there'll be listeners to this going, oh, yeah, great. I get a really bad diagnosis from the doctor and I'm supposed to go, oh, oh, happy day. Here I go. Life's going to be great. We're above ground and breathing. And it's being clear that there are strategies we have to employ to be able to get post-traumatic growth. And there's more and more psychologists now suggesting that we can move through some of those, you know, the Kubler-Ross stuff. Mm -hmm. We can move through that quicker with the right types of support, which will be different for different people, but we can definitely achieve that. And that's, in a nutshell, post-traumatic growth. Yeah, and also reframe. I find reframing very powerful. It's something I came across a few years ago and, you know, kind of embedding that into my own thinking, I suppose. Um, because yeah, and that's the key work. bit. Grace, that, that is so important, what you've just said. So sorry to cut across and jump in, but that is so big because we seem to think reframing is going to be helping somebody else see it, see it differently. But we know our minds, when we get something in our head, we very often can't shake it. And it's very difficult to shift it really hard. But being able to challenge what we're starting to see in our own head Bearing in mind negativity bias, I've mentioned that a few times, but we're going to hold on to difficult stuff and then we're going to catastrophize it. And before we know it, the world's coming to an end and we've just stubbed our toe. You know, it can be that dramatic. And it's being able to stop ourselves and go, okay, what is really going on here? You know, what is it that's that's really playing out? And we don't like to do that because of something called cognitive dissonance. We don't like to disagree if we've started to hold a view and that links to confirmation bias. And there's a whole load of different scientific terms here, but actually being able to say to ourselves, right, am I right in my thinking here? Or could there be another thing that I'm missing? And challenging our own thinking can be quite easy to do with other people. Well, yeah, you're seeing this, but I can see this. I can say this. Teachers are masters at reframing. I hate this subject. I'm never good at school. I'm never, and we help kids reframe that. We do that possibly the best sector out of anyone. We are like ninjas. We are um, reframing Jedi, right? We're that good at it, but I'm not sure how good we are at doing it for ourselves. Exactly. And that is the key. That is the point because you say we're doing it for our students constantly. But how good are we at doing it for ourselves? Because, and I've fallen victim to this, and I know lots of other teachers have, where, you know, we talked about, you know, the three to one ratio, you know, three good things can happen in a day. And it only takes that one thing. And it's that one negative that will stay in our minds yeah. right through to the next day and beyond. So if we oh, can... And it, and it festers. And because we're very clever, not only does it fester, we start to connect other things to that thing, which yeah. are completely unrelated. And, you know, I read a stat and there's different stats on this, depending on which psychology piece you read. But we, we, we talk to ourselves. So as you and me are speaking, I speak far too quickly. So <laughs> apologies to you and your listeners if you go in. Drew, I'm, I'm very close to turning this podcast off because you get on with bloody <laughs> nerves because it's like a million Not words per minute. Most people talk probably about 150 words per minute. I probably do about 200. But we speak to ourselves minimum six, 700 words per minute, maximum, a lot of people think it's between 1,200 and 15 words a minute. 
right? So there's a lot of self-talk going on in our heads, okay? That's the first thing we've got to get our head around. Wow, that's mm-hmm. a lot of talk. It's very quick. It's very snappy. And it's constant, the dialogue going on in our heads. What's interesting is a lot of psychologists will then say, because of negativity bias, the Roy Baumeister stuff, up to 80% of that self-talk is negative. Yeah. So that's like, if you go, I suppose, middle somewhere, that's like 800 negative words to ourselves every minute, every minute. So there's kind of or negative connotations of the words collected. It's It's just something we've got to be on top of. And I know you've had Paul McGee on here, my my great friend, and he talks about that faulty thinking and trying to get perspective with the one to 10. There's some great resources out there that that, that help us do that. But ultimately, it should be a bit of a thrust for all of us to try and get on top and to reframe our thinking. And I'm not talking about living in cloud cuckoo land. I talk about, you know, walking around like, you know, you're on a cloud and everything's great but I am talking about being a hell of a lot more realistic and not allowing that negative sway to take us down there. And of course that will be exacerbated when we get tired and a bit grumpy um, as well. You know, that will also add in the mixer and and start to give us some problems if we're not careful. I totally agree. You you talk about in your book as well, Drew, at times when dealing with difficulty, you know, ways in which we can deal with the difficulty that comes our way. And you kind of put it across in terms of the five H's. Yeah, so this is something, um, again, just played with for about two or three years where I was watching people who could deal with difficult moments, but they seemed to deal with them well. You know, I was interested in the whole Tiger Woods thing, you know, do it like Tiger. He was the, he was the man, wasn't he? Um, Saviour of golf in many ways, uh, a lot of people would say. Then stuff comes out in 2013, 14, and, you know, sex addiction, the drug addiction. At that time, I think he was the third or fourth most hated athlete on the planet. Now, talk about going from hero to zero. Mm-hmm. That's quite significant. Now, again, you watch people like that, and he comes back 2019 and wins the Masters. You know, what Greater Manchester Police did, actually, after the arena attack, I thought, was just outstanding. So I'm always watching people who go through difficult times, and the ones who come out and kind of keep going and, and, and have that what kind of things do they do and that was the whole idea behind the h's and quite simply it's about the first element is you just got to hold your nerve and that is those words are irritating because like they're so easily said and so hard to do you know thinking calm under pressure or whatever we talk about there or thinking clearly under pressure depending on on which one you read but you've got to be able to hold your nerve and i think some of that is about seeing the wood for the trees i think it's about reframing I think it's about capturing yourself. And then for me, the second bit, definitely for leadership terms, but also for, you know, the question you asked me earlier about the ripple effect on my family. You need to humanise these things. You know, in a sports context, very often it's, well, forget that we've got to win. But actually, these are a group of people who are putting themselves, you know, in the limelight and in, you know, the difficult positions publicly and sometimes physically in terms of sport to get a result or in a business, it might be, well, we've got to get, you know, these profits, but you've got to put people first and you've got to make it and you've got to give people time to be able to understand that the people aspect, the human aspect is, is the biggest bit. Then it was about, you know, creating the real focus, which is the hone in, you know, what really matters. And it's not actually what really matters. It's probably what really matters most 
right now. It's kind of like in those difficult moments, there will be a priority list. And I want to take the first couple of ones. And then the bit after that was about the habits, because, you know, we can when you go into a difficult time, you can have a good moment. You can think, you know what, I'm kind of getting my head down that. And then bang, next day or later on that day, you're back down going, oh, woe is me, wailing wall job. Yeah. That's not helpful. The, the 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 fourth H was about creating habits, which was about what are the things I need to do to help me keep honed in, humanizing it and hold my nerve. And it was about the things, you know, that, that I've seen people who've been through really difficult times. They have a, almost a daily game plan of things they've got to do, whether that be exercise or eating right or sleeping eight hours. There will be a set of habits that help that person to navigate life and keep themselves as on track as possible. And then the final aspect, which was just something I threw in at the end, really, because it began with H, to be honest. But I think it's an important one. Steve Rizzo, the comedian uh, in America, over in America, he talks about the fact we're not humour um, human beings. He says we're humour beings. And, and I love that because even in the most difficult of times, yeah, I think humour can be just such a good antidote to what we're facing. Mm-hmm. You know, the amount of people I know who go to funerals, you know, as you get older, you you experience them more and people have to do eulogies. And, you know, if you can bring some some well-timed and well-intended humour to it, it's almost a thing that can bring people together. And some people think they're a bit weirded out by that when I put it in how to deal with difficult times. But I think, you know, don't forget your sense of humour. And I know even on my most difficult days, whatever that's been dealing with, if you can have a laugh about something, and I'm not talking about sick humour or, you know, taking things too far, but I think humour can really help in those difficult moments. And, you know, I've got a lot of people around me who are very humorous people. You know, Paul, as I mentioned him earlier, he's one of them. We'll always have a laugh about something, even difficult times. You know, if you watched, you know, his dad passed away recently, you know, some of the stuff he was putting on social media at the time, you know, it was really sad and 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 heart-wrenching but at the same time he was you know he thought that he was his dad I think or something like that and it you know a bit of humor will definitely help those difficult moments I think so they're the five h's and I, I see them time and time again normally in that order to be honest um and it seems to help people there is just so much to take away from this victory I mean we've only touched on a few of the topics that you write about but like I said, I couldn't get enough. I just had to keep reading and reading because it is full of just brilliant takeaways. So obviously I'll put the link to the book in the show notes below for anyone who's interested in learning more about your book, When the Clouds Come. Drew, when it comes to like uh, inspirational people or leaders in general, has there been anyone in particular that you've followed or met that I guess stand out to you? Oh, Grace, there's so many. Yeah. Honestly, there are so many. And there's a danger in, like, if I start naming, there'll be another podcast this <laughs> length of people I'd, I'd name. I know. Uh, so many. And, and I will say, you know, some of those people who I find inspiring and motivating and are, are um, students in a school, mm. you know, we've all seen it, haven't we? I remembered when I was invited down to Buckingham Palace which was lovely and I appreciated it. Um, But there was a girl in year 11 who was caring for her two younger siblings, uh, you know, before and after school. I remember thinking she's the one who should be down here, not me. 
And I remember really feeling that. And it sounds like it's false humility and no, it's you deserve it Drew, and it's fishing for compliments. But I absolutely believe that. And I found a lot of things very inspiring, particularly during the pandemic as well. You know, people looking after the neighbours and doing amazing things. Um, Dame Deb, who had bowel cancer. Um, you know what she did in that that is leadership that is inspiring Amazing. that is influence I, you know even Greta Thunberg I don't always agree with what she says or how she goes about things but she's a 16 year old kid who is making the world sit up and listen about something she's passionate about so I think reframing what mm-hmm. leadership and inspiration is I think it can be found a lot close to home and, and and too often we go for the person on social media or the person on tv or the person who's done this or the person who's done that there's a lot of inspiring stuff happening everywhere yeah. it's important that we take the fuel off that um and make the most of it I'd say and tell people when it's happening you know tell them because very often we go wow that was amazing we don't tell them. And I'm one of those people that likes to do that now, you know, because that'll be a moment for them. They might not even be aware. You know, I work a lot with the um, Christie in Greater Manchester, uh, the Greater Manchester Cancer Drive. What those leaders are doing there, Grace, is, is, is ludicrously inspiring. And every time I'm there, I'm going, I love being here. And they know the places I go and the people I talk to. And they're like grateful for me being there. And I'm like, I oh, know, hold on a minute. Let's have a time out. What you're doing is truly life-saving and truly inspiring. They're even offering cancer treatments, people from the Ukraine, right, as well as everything else that they've got going on. Incredible, incredible stuff. So I think if you look hard enough and we kind of move away from that negativity bias and we go towards there's so much good in the world, and I'm not an idiot. Some people might think I am, Grace, but I don't think I am. I'm not a complete idiot anyway. Let's settle on that one. Um, So some people will go, oh, he's just positive all the time. I just say, maybe, but I do believe in realistic optimism. And I'd say, open your eyes, because there's a hell of a lot of good going on, probably right under your nose that you're missing. So don't. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And I'm actually thinking of people just as you're talking who inspire me, who are literally on my doorstep. You know, they're, they're not known on social media. They don't have thousands of followers. They're just doing inspiring things. Every no one knows. No, and no one, one knows. knows. They're not doing it for a fact. They're not exactly. doing it for this. There's no media marketing arm to it. They're no. just doing good human things. And I, I, I love seeing it in my own kids with my wife and the things that they do, you know, just little things. I go and I pick up on it and I go, that was really good when you did that. I like that. And let's, if we all did that a bit more, we'd expand those things even more. And people would feel a lot better about the good in the world because let's face it we turn the news on and it's just so negative isn't it at the moment and I actually got I got to a point where I stopped turning the news on and it wasn't it wasn't like for lack of wanting to know it was just I was just getting really sick of the negativity every day and it was one thing after another after another so I think it's really important as well to take those breaks away from the negativity of the media as well yeah it is and there's a lot of people who do it you know Chris Dyson's a great friend of mine He's just banging the drum. And like me, Chris won't be everyone's cup of tea. But I think the guy's outstanding in every aspect. And what you see on social media is him, right? He will do anything for anyone at any point for all the right reasons. And I think there's enough people we can find and follow that just give us that. Yeah, do you know what? Life is life is so good. Yeah, we have difficult times. And I'm clear in the book, Grace. I've not had a difficult life. 
I've not had a difficult life. I really haven't compared mm. to so many people, but I've had difficult moments. And I think it's it's mining for the good stuff is yeah. the key bit. And there's enough out there for us to find. Going back to the title of the book, When the Clouds Come, they come, they will clear and they will come again. Yeah. And and, and if we if we don't learn, going back to the whole teaching principle we started off this podcast with, if we don't learn a better way of dealing with that difficult time, it'll hit us a bit harder second time. And, it, you know, because we're kind of almost a bit used to it, it'll be, oh, no, not this again. Mm. And, and that's that bit. Clouds do come. But the other reason I came up with that title um, was because clouds come. They do. They do. They sometimes stay for a while. They sometimes go pretty quickly, but they come, but they do go. And it's like the saying, this, this too shall pass or this soon shall pass. It will. And difficult times, it's the same. We get through it sometimes with scars, but we will get through it. And that's the key bit. Just keep going. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dre, apart from your own book, is there any books that you've read? Because I often like to give my listeners some books that they might be interested in as well, like a recommendation. Are there any that come to mind? Well, the bearing in mind, I've read over 700 books on leadership, change, success and culture. I say that not as, as an impressive point. I say that to magnify the point that I am a, an enormous leadership geek. Um, so many, um, so many. And there's big names in there. Um, you know, like John Maxwell and Matthew Syed and Patrick Lencioni. There's so many great ones that they've done. And that's on, on kind of the leadership stuff. But you know, I, I love Paul McGee's stuff. You know, how to live a great life for me is just like, you know, off the scale. Um, I like Steve Oakes's stuff, you know, the A-level and GCSE mindset. I like the way he writes. And I think there's a lot of life principles in there. Um, I love Phil Denton's book you know, the first yeah. 100 days that he wrote with Mickey Mellon. I think that's outstanding. There's so much in there. And that's not me saying my mates to get, get them more book sales. I rate the books and I like them. Chris Dyson's new one out, the Parklands one, is is absolutely fantastic. I love Stuart Pierce's book. His latest one came out uh, during the pandemic and that's all around resilience. It'd be really hard, a bit like the person. I can't name one, but what I would say is keep reading you yeah. know I give the tip of Blinkist to so many people the book summary app you know if you all never read that well get Blinkist because there's 15 minute book summaries on there that you can read or you can listen to you know keep learning because ultimately our competence in something from the reading will lead to confidence so even if you don't want the learning from it the more you learn you know the more confident you'll become in whatever walk of life you choose to walk in. Absolutely. Dre, just to end our conversation, would you have like a parting message that you could give to those of us in education who are ending the term and embarking now on our much needed summer holidays? Yeah, I mean, for me, every time in education, you have got to look after yourself. Um, I did a post this morning on this on, on social media. You've got to rest. You've got to recharge, you've got to recalibrate, you've got to reflect, you've got to refocus. Lots of words beginning with R, it's just how my mind works. But ultimately, before you re-engage, there's another one, that's just coming back. Before you re-engage next year, you've got to look after yourself. And everyone's going to say that. And it washes over us now. And there's great things happening on social media, the five-a-day stuff, the Pat Scott, Leo Connor, uh, the Paul Garvey stuff. There's so much great stuff. But what I'd say is get serious about it. And the post wasn't long enough for me to say this, but, you know, I'm not saying 
plan your holidays within an inch of its life where well I have this and then I have a five minute turnover then I go and do this like you'd have a school day but I would say be strategic about your rest so you maximize it because ultimately the job in education is huge and you know it's a tired phrase this but it's a very important one to remember you can't pour from an empty vessel so number one for you I think with everything education's been through not just this year I mean, let's add the last couple of years to it. It's been absolutely crazy and the demand has been through the roof. And we'll get that, you know, delayed impact, I think, this summer. So teachers, look after yourselves, please, for you. Number one priority, look after yourselves. We need great teachers, you know, fully going. And number two, because if you don't, what's going to happen? You're going to come back with less air in your tyres, less fuel in the tank, and you ain't going to be able to do your job. And then the kids miss out. And it is such a demanding job. You know, having done lots of different jobs and seeing lots of different jobs, I don't think you can compare them in terms of being tired. But in terms of being emotionally draining, you're giving everything to 30 kids on a regular basis every day. And it's not just the teachers, it's the support staff as well. They're draining themselves emotionally, not just physically, every single day. So when does the recharge happen? Well, I hope it happens now. And I hope the weather stays good for everybody throughout the summer holidays so you can do that rest stuff in nice weather. Brilliant advice. Thank you so much. For my listeners who would like to learn more about you um, and how you might be able to even assist them or their organisations, how can they get in touch? Yeah, so if they get in touch through the website, or on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm on TikTok. I did a talk with TikTok before viewers start like spitting the tea out laughing. Uh, what would a 44-year-old guy who looks as old and crusty as you be doing on TikTok? Um, I, I love the platform. I think it's brilliant. So yeah. any of those platforms, get in touch. And if we can help people, we always will. Drew, thank you so much. Honestly, I cannot thank you enough, first of all, for your time today. Thank you for making this conversation happen and for ending season one. I couldn't have thought of anybody else that I'd want to end it with. Thank you so, so much. Listen, it's a pleasure, Grace. It's always a pleasure to work with you. And what I would say is thank you for doing this because we've talked about those positive elements dripping down, giving people stuff to help them learn. Everything I pretty much talked about you're doing with this podcast and like the book I put out there to help people there is no question in my mind with you and the guests that you've had on previously this podcast is going to be doing exactly that as Steve Jobs said you're making your own dent in the universe so fair play to you and all the very best in the future Grace. Isn't he just brilliant? I love my conversations with Drew. I am a huge fan of his work and I'm genuinely thrilled that Drew found the time to come on to chat with me today to close the season by sharing his messages of wisdom and inspiration, which we all need. I have had the best year with all of you and this platform is only as successful as you, the listeners, allow. And I would like to thank all of you who have downloaded and listened to any of the episodes that I have shared with you this academic year. I hope the content has been of use and of interest, and I hope that you have gained as much from the conversations as I have. And at this point, I really would like to extend my appreciation once again with my amazing guests. I would like to thank again Paula Darcy, 
Chris Misselbrook, Paul McGee, Lydia McCartney, Kim Meller, Jade Kelly, Sunita Bagri, Edwin Van Ruin, Kelly Hannigan, Pauline Ronan, Steve Waters, Dr. John Wilson, Paul Cope, Patrick Oshley O'Connor, Ilaria Petrucci, Matt Desheen, and of course, the brilliant Drew Povey for providing us with so much value throughout this academic year. I am passionate about keeping good teachers in the job that we all entered out of love for our subjects and the young people in our care. And it is vital that we take time to discover new ways of thinking and doing things, to find tools to transform our practices, to manage the challenges of life and to implement our learning across all areas of our lives. I would love you to share this episode with a friend or a colleague if you think it would help and to head over to iTunes and leave me a five-star review. Have a very well-deserved summer break. Fill up your cup surrounded by those you love doing what you love. And a huge thank you for me again for all your support. I am very much looking forward to bringing to you season two in the new academic year, when I will bring to you more amazing guests who are on the quest to help you find your saving grace in each day.